But after the custom, after the pattern of Hebraic poetry, he refers to the word of God, the written revelation of God, in many different terms. As you'll see on the PowerPoint slide in front of you, these are the dominant terms used to describe the word of God throughout Psalm 119. Law, word, judgments, testimonies, commandments, statutes, precepts, and then another Hebrew word that's also translated word. So just because he says statutes or just because he says testimonies, don't think that he's talking about something different than the written word of God. Just again, after the pattern of Hebraic poetry, which likes to mentally examine an item from a lot of different angles, uh, he talks about the word of God, referring to it with many different terms. So we'll see that again in the two sections that we go over, starting with the section Mem, which is the 13th of the 22 sections around the Hebrew letter Mem. And again, in the ancient Hebrew, every line in this eight-verse section, begins with the Hebrew letter Mem. We begin now at verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. It's kind of interesting when you take a look at this section. Different sections of Psalm 119 are filled with petition. They're they're cries to God to help, to bless, to preserve, to purify, This particular section that we're looking at now, this section of eight verses, there's not a single petition in the whole section. It's more of an outpouring of praise for the goodness and the greatness of the word of God. As he says here in verse 97, he cries out. It's a wonderful explanation. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, twice before in the psalm, the writer has declared his love for the word of God. That was back in verse 47 and verse 48. Yet here, the phrasing is even more passionate. His devotion to God and his devotion to God's word has built a love relationship between the psalmist and God's word. He doesn't say, uh, I used to love your law, or he doesn't say, one day I will love your law. He describes how he feels about the word of God right now. And he's also speaking for himself. He isn't talking about how other people should feel, but about how he feels right at the moment. And to put it in the strongest or most passionate kind of terms, he says, oh, how I love your law. It's just sort of the cry of almost a romance, of of a passionate love. There's a a description, is there as well, uh, of a comparison, right? How I love your law speaks of the way that he loves the word of God more than other things. And there's almost a, a lover's sighing and there's, oh, how I love you. Oh, how I care about you. That the sort of talk that you might have between a husband and a wife. Here the psalmist exclaims out to God how much he loves the word of God. Shows us something as well, that for somebody to love the word of God this much, it shows that there is beauty in the word of God. I hope you understand this. I hope you experience it. Am I uh, speaking this evening? If you feel that you don't love the word of God, or you don't see the beauty in the word of God the way that the psalmist does. I have no word of condemnation for you. I just say, seek God that he would show you it. Friends, the beauty's there. The beauty and the power of the word of God is there. It's just whether or not we will perceive it, we will see it. And listen, the superficial Christian 
may read and understand and even in an outward sense obey the word of God. But only the spiritual man loves the word of God. Now, only the spiritual one lives as if they cannot live without it. To, to the superficial Christian, diligence or, or, or attention to the word of God is a duty to satisfy the conscience. But to the believer, it's food, it's medicine, it's light, it's comfort. It's the very word of God that is life. And now listen, if you feel you don't have this love for the word of God, I've got good news for you. I think your love for the word of God can grow. I really believe that. You, you can't make yourself love someone or something, but you can cultivate love towards someone or something. And that's very much like making yourself love them, right? Uh, you may have experienced this in your own life. There's a person that, that maybe at one point in your life you said, well, I don't love them. But then something has changed in your heart and something has changed in the way that you act towards them and you find yourself cultivating love towards them. Matter of fact, I think the principles are very much the same between the way that we might cultivate love towards a person and ways that we would cultivate love towards the word of God. I would say this. If you want to cultivate love, then give that thing your time. Set it before you constantly. Right? If you give something your time, you're going you're gonna to cultivate a love towards it. Give it your attention and your care. Look after the word of God. By the way, did you notice what he says in verse 97? It is my meditation all the day. Things that we think about, that we look, not only does it display love, but it cultivates love. You may have known that, that, that beautiful, beautifully vicious circle in a personal relationship, right? You love somebody. The, the, the young man loves the young woman and he loves, I'm thinking of it was with me and Ingalil in our early days. You know, you just, you're sort of obsessed with that person in your mind, aren't you? Isn't love just sort of like this mental and, and, and personal obsession with another person? You, you think about them all the time, don't you? Well, what's interesting about that is your thoughts after them tend to increase the love you have for them. And like I say, directed in the right way, because we know that it's possible for us to love people or things that we shouldn't love, but directed in the right way, it's a beautifully vicious circle. And to increase love or to cultivate it, give the beloved object a truly listening ear. Listen to it. If you want to love someone, listen to them. Give them your honor and your obedience. Give them your appreciation that is value that person or that thing for all the good that it has done in your life and be thankful for that good. And sometimes we will counsel people who seem to be out of love one with another just about that thing. You say, no, wait a minute. You, you, you tend to look at the negative things in that person. Would you just sit down just for a moment now and think about all the good things in that person? Think about all the things you have to be thankful for in them. If you do the same towards the word of God, you will cultivate a greater love towards the word of God. If you give it your dependence and your trust, you will let it care for you. That will increase your love. And then finally, if you give it your praise, if we praise something, we'll find ourselves loving them or loving it more. And so when we speak highly of the Bible before others, we find ourselves loving the word of God all the more. 
Now, if I could, I'll introduce another dynamic to this. If you want to transfer this idea of a love relationship with another person to our love relationship with the Word of God, when we truly love somebody, we don't wish to change them, do we? And when you truly love the Word of God, you don't go around trying to change the Word of God. Don't bend the Bible to you. Bend yourself to the Bible. Say, oh, I love your law, Lord. I love it all, and I want to conform my life to the Word instead of trying to conform the Word to my life. I like what Charles Spurgeon said along these lines. He said, I beseech you to let your Bibles be everything to you. Carry this matchless treasure with you continually and read it and read it and read it again and again. Turn its pages day and night. Let its narratives mingle with your dreams. Let its precepts color your lives. Let its promises cheer your darkness. Let its divine illumination make glad your life. As you love God, love this book, which is the book of God and the God of books, as it has rightly been called. So we agree with the psalmist when he cries out. He says, oh, how I love your law. But then he continues on in verse 97. It is my meditation all the day. Because the psalmist loved God's word, it was natural and expected that he would think about it often. A lover finds it very easy to think about and to meditate upon the one he loves, right? You you can't stop. Someone thinking about the object of their love. So he meditated on God's word because he loved it, but then he loved it even more because he meditated upon it. And he did it all the day long, right? All the day long. Now, I don't think you could say that this meant that the psalmist walked around every day like this, you know, every step he took. Now, I probably had the Bible with him, but even more so than having it in his hand, it was in his heart, right? It was in his mind. He thought about the scriptures all the time. You know, maybe in our modern vernacular, it'd say he had post-it notes or sticky notes all over the place with a little verse, with a little word, just to think about the word of God all the time. By the way, if you're not in the habit of doing that, if if your mind doesn't come and suggest the scriptures to you already all the time, why don't you do that in your life? Buy a little pack of post-it notes. Believe me, it's not expensive. Might be some of the best edification you ever had. You just write out a little verse and you put it on the mirror in the morning. And then you put something on the uh, on the sun visor in your car. And then you put something at a place where you could see it at school or at work all the time so that the word of God is in front of you. Because, listen, when we do love the Bible, we find a lot to meditate on. It's as if it's an endless storehouse of treasure for us. We look at the Bible and we see that it's a letter from our loving father. We look at the Bible and we see that it's a picture of our best and most faithful friend. We look at the Bible and we see that it's a certificate of our adoption into the family of God. We look at the Bible and we see that it's the declaration of our liberty. It's our freedom from slavery. We look at the Bible and we see that it's the description of our heavenly inheritance. It's the evidence of our nobility because by it we are made kings and priests unto God. The Bible is our instruction manual for wise and blessed living. It's a both uh, our checking account, so to speak, our checkbook before God for what belongs to us by the promises of God and a statement of our account. And it's a telescope by which we see the heavenly city that is our destination. Now, if we understand these things about the Bible, of course, it's going to be precious to us. 
You, you see that person in your mind's eye, don't you? That person who used to be a slave, but they got a letter from the government saying you're no longer a slave. Wouldn't he carry that letter with him proudly? Friends, this is your letter. You are no longer a slave. Or, or, or he has that writing that says you, you are no longer. Now you are adopted as a son or a daughter into the family of a great king. That's your certificate of adoption. Would you not carry that with you in your heart and in your mind and value it so greatly? That's because we don't see, we don't comprehend, we don't understand that we don't love the Bible as much as we might. But, but then going on in verse 98, he describes how God's word gives great wisdom. He says here, starting at verse 98, you through your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. It's hard for me to think of bolder verses in Psalm 119 than these three verses that we saw here. I, I read this and I, I'm almost a little bit uncomfortable with them. Because when you think about what they really say, it's awfully bold language. First in verse 98, he says, you through your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. Now, the psalmist had many enemies, and some of them were evil, and some of them were proud. And perhaps the proud ones boasted that they were wiser or more educated than the writer of the psalm. Well, you, Mr. Psalmist, you don't have wisdom. We have much greater education than you. Who are you? We don't have to pay attention to you. But the psalmist says, no, I am confident that the word of God gives me more wisdom than my enemies. I am wiser than my enemies because of the word of God. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, I am wiser than my enemies. But then he says, I have more understanding than my teachers. Matter of fact, in verse 99, he says, than all my teachers. And then he goes on in verse 100 and says, I understand more than the ancients. Wow, that's bold speaking. But please, let's put it into some context here. In verse 90, 98, he says, through your commandments, they make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. You see, the, the psalmist was real about the abiding presence of his enemy. They were with him ever, and he had to gain enough spiritual strength so that he could conquer over them. The enemies were always with him, but so was the word of God. But then he continues on in verse 99, as I just mentioned. He said, I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. You see here, the ex psalmist explains how he could be wiser than his enemies. He even had more understanding than all of his teachers, who we trust were not the same as the aforementioned enemies, because of his serious study and meditation upon God's word. Now, please, let's break this down together. First of all, this verse teaches us that it is vitally important to have understanding, even great understanding. And we know this because of the great value that the psalmist puts on having more understanding. But it also teaches us that it is not wrong or bad to have teachers because the psalmist had teachers either now or in the past. Teachers taught him about life. Teachers taught him about God's word. This verse is not a renunciation of teachers. But this verse teaches us 
that our understanding of God's word and God's ways is not limited to what we receive from our teachers. And friends, I hope that as you're here and as you listen to, to the teaching that I may give you or others may give you from this pulpit, I trust that you receive something. But please understand your education, so to speak, before the Lord. And I mean that in a spiritually educated sense. It shouldn't end with what you get from the pulpit. God can speak to you and through you in his word. You see, we can learn from our own study and meditation. And the teachers are often helpful but not always necessary. Understanding is necessary, but teachers may or may not be. But this is what this verse also shows us. If you take a look at verse 99, it says that this understanding does not always come easily. What does he say in verse 99? I have more understanding from my, or than my, all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Oh, he worked at it, friends. You see, meditation involves some element of mental work. It involves the idea or the ability to stay focused and the necessary tools for biblical understanding and analysis. And friends, this principle of a man and his Bible, sometimes knowing more than all the teachers, it's been proven in the lives of God's servants again and again. The Bible tells us of men who were not educated by the world's standards, such as the disciples in Acts chapter 4, yet they had great understanding and they were effective in serving God. It's not just in the Bible that we see this principle, though. We see this principle proven in the lives of God's servants since Bible times. We think of Charles Spurgeon. We think of D.L. Moody. We think of William Carey. We we think of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. We we think of Hudson Taylor. And we think all of these remarkable men served God and made a mighty impact in their day with no formal biblical or theological education. But friends, please, it's also helpful to remember that God has used many men who were greatly educated. Moses, Daniel, Paul are biblical examples. And then if you want to look in history, Augustine, Luther and Billy Graham are just a few historical examples. It's just as wrong to think that a formal education disqualifies someone for effective service as it is to think that it automatically qualifies someone for effective service. Friends, here's the principle. Do you have understanding from the word of God? If education has helped you achieve it, then praise the Lord. But listen, there are ways to achieve this great understanding that may run outside of the lines of educational institutions. It's possible, as Charles Spurgeon said, it's possible to hear the wisest teachers and still remain a fool. But if you will meditate on the sacred word, we must become wise There is more wisdom in the testimonies of the Lord than in all the teachings of men. If they were all gathered into one vast library, this one book outweighs all the rest. Again, that's a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Now, if it's one thing for him to say, I'm wiser than my enemies. Yes, go psalmist. It's another thing for him to say, I understand more than all my teachers, which is so bold. I can't believe he said it. Because he didn't just say, then one of my teachers. He said, then all my teachers. But then did you see what he said in verse 100? This is what really blows my mind to use an expression. He says, I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. 
the psalmist was even more bold in than just saying that God's word had given him an education better than his teachers. Now he says, I understand more than the ancients. And this is particularly meaningful when we realize how highly the, the wisdom of the ancients was regarded in that day and in that culture. You know, in our modern world, we all think we're smarter than the ancients. It's sort of our modern arrogance, right? But in the psalmist day, oh no, they honored the wisdom of the ancients. This is no small thing that he's saying. It's a great thing, actually. Now listen, this also tells us that while we should in general respect the understanding and the wisdom of the ancients, which the psalmist surely did in general, we are not slaves to the wisdom of the ancients and their understandings. Friends, our rule for faith and practice is the Bible itself not the understanding of it or the interpretation of it from the, even the great men of history. And so I am interested what notable people in church history have had to say about the Bible at this place or other place, but none of that weighs as much as the Bible itself does. James Montgomery Boyce, in his good commentary on the Psalms, he tells a story about the life of a man named Harry Ironside. Maybe you know Harry Ironside. He wrote wonderful, devotionally-oriented commentaries that actually give great insight into the text. Well, Boyce tells the story about the life of Ironside, who was a pastor and an author and a Bible commentator. And Ironside once went to visit a man near death, and the man was suffering from tuberculosis. And the man was almost dead and could barely speak. And as Ironside asked him, he said, Young man... You're trying to preach Christ, aren't you? And Ironside said, well, yes, I am. And the man replied, well, sit down a little bit and let us talk together about the word of God. And then the man opened his Bible and spoke with Henry, Henry Ironside until he had no more strength. And he shared insights from the Bible that Ironside had never appreciated or never, never noticed before. And Ironside was stunned. And he asked this man, where did you get these things? Can you tell me where I can find the book that will open them up to me? Did you get them in seminary or in a college? And the old man replied this, quoting, My dear young man, I learned these things on my knees on the mud floor of a little sod cottage in the north of Ireland. There, with my open Bible before me, I used to kneel for hours at a time and ask the Spirit of God to reveal Christ to my soul and to open the Word of God to my heart. He taught me more on my knees on that mud floor than I could have ever learned in all the seminaries or colleges of the world. I think that quaint story wonderfully expresses the heart of the psalmist here, that there are things that God will impart to the seeking soul who will seriously approach the word of God that go beyond what a man or woman can receive from even good and godly teachers. But then he continues on now, verse 101. He says, I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments for you yourself have taught me. You see, the psalmist understood that restraining himself from evil would also help him to understand the word of God better. 
There's a, an important step that many people need to take in their understanding of God's Word. Do, do you want the Word of God to open up to you more? To, to yield its, its treasures to you more freely? Well, here's a, a hint. Pursue personal holiness. Get your life right with God. And you'll find in many ways that you'll have a greater spiritual apprehension of what the Word of God says. He continues on there in verse 102, where he says, I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. The personal connection that the psalmist had with God through his word encouraged him in a faithful walk. You see, this also demonstrates that God can teach the believer through his word in a direct sense. Look at those words in verse 102. For you yourself have taught me. Now, this does not mean that Everything a person comes to through self-study is corrector from God. I've had people come, wow, I was reading my Bible. I came up with the most amazing doctrine. And they'll come to me and talk about it. And sometimes I have to put my arm around that brother and say, well, brother, the reason why that doctrine is so amazing is because it's false. You didn't read the text closely enough here. And it wasn't really the spirit of God that revealed that to you. No, we're not trying to say that everything a person comes to through self-study is correct or from God, and it does not eliminate the need for Bible teachers. Yet it does fulfill what Jesus would say later in John chapter 16, verse 13, where he said, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Yes, you yourself have taught me. And then he continues in the section. He says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. The psalmist felt that the word of God was as pleasant to him as sweet things, even sweeter than honey. Time spent in God's word for him wasn't an unpleasant duty. It was a sweet experience to be thankful for. And he cries out and he says, how sweet. Again, that's the idea of a comparison. He can't express the degree of sweetness. You see, uh, we, he had this idea of, of, of how the, the, he had very little of God's word, right? Comparatively to us. Think of what he had. What did the psalmist have? The first five books of Moses. Uh, perhaps uh, the book of Joshua and Judges and a few books more. We have so much more of the richness and the sweetness of God's word than the psalmist even have. And if he found it sweet, friends, we should be spiritually speaking in a diabetic coma when we read. When we read how sweet the word of God is in the gospel. Could you imagine what he would say about the gospel of John? I mean, he's finding this tremendous sweetness in Deuteronomy. And here we are with the gospel of John. Oh, friends, it's a beautiful thing to think about. See, the Bible is filled with passage after passage that anyone with any spiritual sensitivity would find sweet. Psalm 23, right? Isn't that sweet? Uh, John 3.16, Romans 8.28, right? Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, over and over again. It's so sweet just to think about the truth in God's word. You see, if you can't find anything beautiful or anything sweet in verses like that, then your taste buds are terribly dulled and your eyes are terribly glazed. You've been deceived by what James Montgomery Boyce called the tawdry glitz of our culture. 
Instead, we need to see the sweetness and the beauty of God's word. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 104. He says, therefore, I hate every false way. The understanding gained by the word of God gave him discernment and courage. He could perceive and hate every false way. I find it fascinating that this section of the Psalms, verse 97, it begins with love, right? Oh, how I love your law. How does it end? It ends with hate. He hates every false way. You see, the Christian life has its sweetness. But again, to quote from James Montgomery Boyce, it is not all sweetness. It has sweet moments and there's incomparable beauty in God. But we still live in a sour, ugly world. And it's equally important for us to learn how to hate evil as it is for us to love good. And God's word points the way on both aspects. Father, this is our prayer. We do. We love your word, Lord God, but we want to love it more. And along with our love for your word, we want to hate evil. So help us to do that, Lord. Teach us your word, your way, your will. We love you and we praise you here this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.